You are listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, where faith meets fandom. Welcome to the show for progressive followers of Jesus who also happen to love Hogwarts, hobbits, and being tricked by a barnacle covered in bioluminescent algae as a diversion. This is season four, episode two, I Know Your Name. My name is Adam Thomas, and I'm very happy to be sitting across the internet from Carrie Combs. Hello, Carrie. Hello, Adam. I like how you did that with the names. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, it's it's just right there. It's it's, it's one of those improv things. Um, so sorry about my uh, Tomatoa voice there, but I did my best. Oh, it was beautiful. Very very good <laughs> New Zealand accent. As a diversion. As a diversion. My um my kids watched the movie with me yesterday, and they they had seen bits and pieces of it a couple of years ago, and um they thought the little coconut creatures were the funniest thing they've ever seen. I thought they would think those things were scary. And they, they, are, they, are they pretty did scary. not. They thought it was hilarious. I thought they would think Tomatoa was scary. Nope. Oh, my son wow. thought my son thought that the dad being mad at Moana was scary, which is pretty normal. It, you know, yeah, relationships yeah. when they're yep. rocky. I don't get, like it you know, even as an adult. It can get a little, you know, and then um and then the the island kind of uh, turning black and and and, mm. and during Moana's dream that was a little creepy. But even Teka, they were fine with Teka. I, I thought that part would be scary for them too. But nope, nope. Relationships wow. and islands disappearing. That's that's so, probably good. Says a good thing about their futures right, and what yeah, they're concerned so. about. Oh, and the movie we're talking about today, oh, right. we didn't say, is Moana with a right. couple of additional fantasy properties as yep. we discuss the topic of names and true names and what names mean. Right. Yes. I, we maybe we we assumed that the bioluminescent algae would have given it away. That's true. If you don't immediately know what that quote is from, you should probably just stop listening to the podcast right oh, now. Oh, come on. No, just, just kidding. Mean. That's just me. But you really, you should know uh, that one. Oh, yes. Moana. Brush as off we your all Moana know, chops. We all know Moana is Carrie's favorite movie. Continues to be. I was like two seconds into watching it. No characters had even come across the screen. It was just the Disney symbol with the music playing over it. And I was already crying. Yeah, and my and I said my kids were watching it with me, and we got to the end where which we're going to talk about today, where Moana puts the heart back, and I start getting choked up, and I'm like trying to hide it from my kids because they're not getting choked up at all, and I'm getting choked up, and I'm like, uh huh, mm-hmm. yeah, this it's a fine. good movie. This it's, is, it's, this it's, is it's all fine. good. Yeah. yeah, we're good. Uh huh. This isn't yeah. like deeply meaningful at all on a soul level. No. Nope. And, nope. and, and then Maui says the chicken lives, and I start laughing, and everything's fine again. All right. Well, uh, okay. Our scripture quote for today comes from Matthew chapter one. An angel from the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because the child she carries was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now, all of this took place so that what the Lord had spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled. Look, a virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. And our nerd quotation today is from the song, Know Who You Are from Moana. I have crossed the horizon to find you. I know your name. They have stolen the heart from inside you, but this does not define you. This is not who you are. You know who you are, who you truly are.
Oh, and then I start crying. Oh, I start crying before that. I start crying when oh, when, the, when, when when she starts walking in slow motion. I start. I think it, it when, when she me. said like, "Let her come to me." Mm-hmm. That's yeah. when I get real choked up. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Anyway, well, we're not talking about us crying today. We're talking about just a little names and. We've already talked about Moana on the podcast before. This is, I think, the first time we have come back to a movie we've already done an entire episode about. Mm, perhaps. Um, I think it is. But there's so much in Moana that we wanted to uh, to talk more about it. And uh, when I started to look at this movie from the perspective of naming, I saw so much more that I hadn't seen in the other half dozen times that I've watched it. And the topic of naming comes up in a lot of other fantasy properties. I was, I've been finally, after years and years of being recommended to me, reading uh, the Dresden Files, and, if, and naming is important in that, is in terms of names have power. And I know that's an important fantasy trope, of you know, if if the creatures a fairy or or your enemies have your name, they have power over you. And yet, I want we wanted to start with Moana because the names both of Moana and of Tikka slash Tafiti are so pivotal to how the movie runs, especially if you look at it through that lens. So the interesting thing when you start looking at Moana from the concept of naming is in the first song, the first word of the song is Moana's name. Mm-hmm. Right? Moana, right? Uh, oh, not the chanting part. Sorry, Never mind. No, the, okay. the first song, the first English that we yes. hear. Uh, is is Moana's name as the chief begins teaching her about how to be the next mm-hmm. leader of the of of the uh, people, and uh, during that song, the grandma Grandma Tala uh, sings as well, right? And and this is where we get that idea that the the first germ of the idea about the name being that that deep thing inside of you mm-hmm. comes from that song. Right, because so much of that song is her family, her island, teaching her the external things about her her vocation and her path. As Moana, as the daughter of the chief, you are going to be the next chief, and here's all the things you need to learn and do and be. And yet Grandma Tala is the one who says, no matter what else happens, no matter whose father you, or sorry, whose daughter you are, there's a voice inside that whispers Moana, and that's who you are, who you truly are. Mind what mind what he says, mind what your dad says, but remember, you may hear a voice inside. And if the voice starts to whisper to follow the farthest star, Moana, that voice inside is who you are. So the movie is setting us up for a journey both out into the ocean, mm-hmm. but also a journey inside her herself to claim who she truly is. Well, and we hear Moana's name so often in this film that it becomes kind of a refrain um, as Grandma Tala is telling her what she needs to do because Grandma Tala knows she's been called by the ocean. She received the heart of Tafiti that the ocean gave her. But of course, being a, a small like toddler, she drops it. Grandma Tala scoops it up. And when Moana is kind of reconnecting with her vocation, um, Grandma Tala gives her the heart and says, you know, here's what you're going to say to Maui. My name is Moana of Matanui. You will board my boat, cross the sea, and restore the heart of Tafiti. And that becomes what Moana repeats to herself as she's on the boat trying to find Maui. She's trying to keep herself awake in the middle of the ocean, and she'll just mutter it to herself, you know, I am Moana of Matanui. And we hear that so often that it becomes a refrain that when she tries to introduce herself to Maui, that's what she's she's preparing to do. She's ready to say who she is and what her mission is, and it centers on her name. This is where it gets interesting because 
once she's been rehearsing that script, I am Moana. It, it reminds mm -hmm. me a little bit of my name is Inigo Montoya. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You killed my you father. Killed my prepare, father. To prepare to die. <laughs> right? uh, I am Moana of Motunui. Uh, the first two times that she tries to say the script to Maui, he interrupts her. And she does not actually say her name until they're back, until they're both on the boat. And the and he keeps tossing her in the water and the water puts her back on the boat. But the oh. first two times on Maui's deserted island, he interrupts her and she doesn't get her name out. So typical of, <laughs> of this incarnation of Maui, who is kind of overbearing and clownish and just like a dude in the worst way, you know? Yeah, he goes on a journey throughout the movie as he well. He definitely does. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so she never act, she never actually fully says her name when challenging him until she gets back on the boat and he notices the water start putting her on the boat and realizing mm. that there's something special about her. And then this is this is what I mean by overanalyzing. No, <laughs> over this, is, this is all here. It's in the text, here, Adam. Yeah, here it comes. In the um, text. Then he the only time he says her name once when she introduces herself, when she finally gets the script out, I am Moana Motunui, you know, you will board my boat. And she actually does take him by the ear, right? Mm -hmm. um, and he repeats it at that moment. So your name is Moana. It kind of right. sarcastically, right? Like, yeah, you've yep. been telling me this for a while now. But then he only calls her nicknames until... Oh, that's right. Until he starts... Um, until he starts teaching her to wayfind, the, the and the next time he calls her Moana is after he has taught her to wayfind, and they they get to Tafiti's Island the first time. He calls her Curly, he calls her Buttercup, he calls her Daughter of the Chief, mm -hmm. he calls her Chosen One, he calls her Princess, but he does not call her Moana until she has learned to wayfind. Oh my goodness! So he's giving her all these additional monikers some of which have been episodes of the podcast for Nerdy <laughs> Christians. Yes. <laughs> um, but but only only on the way to Tafiti's Island. And that's also where they have a rather tender moment about, well, it's when he, he reveals some tenderness to her and she's like, you should have saved it for when we got to, to, to the island. And he's like, well, there it is. Mm -hmm. So right before, like on the, essentially on the eve of battle is what they're seeing this as, he actually acknowledges who she is and what her call is. Yeah. And, and once she has claimed that call and has learned to, to, and has learned more about that vocation of being a wayfinder, does he say her name? Mm -hmm. But then we'll get to this in a few minutes. It's not until she claims her name that she's able to complete the mission. Exactly. Right. So, so Maui's kind of blessing is important, but it's not the whole picture. Right. Because it goes terribly wrong after that they do not they do not reach the first time they're at uh to cause or to blocks their way to what they think is to island um maui's hook is hit after they have a disagreement around you know do we keep going or sh should we stay or should we go and moana wants to go and maui wants to come back and he ends up leaving her and she's left all alone in her boat in the middle of the ocean the heart has been what thrown into the sea dropped she, into she, the sea she throws it in she throws she, it she throws it in yeah. and she's at a moment of crisis and feeling like she is at her wits end and she can't do it anymore. And that's when she receives the visit from her grandma again in, in her spirit ray form. Yeah. And let's, let's pause there. Cause we want to get back to that uh, in a little bit, but let's, let's talk about a few other things in the movie before we get mm. there, because that's the low point of the movie Oh yeah, is right yeah, after yeah. she's tossed the, tossed the heart into the ocean and said, somebody else can do this. It's not me. It's not me. Um, so we'll get back to that in a minute, but let's, let's circle back for just a second. 
um, because there's a few other elements here where we see naming being being important and, and the stuff that's inside us being important. Mm. Um, like Tom, Tom Atoa's song about Ooh, being shiny, right? And he talks about about it all being on the outside, mm-hmm. right? Um, it was a drab little crab once. Um, then, and he thinks that Moana being told to be who she is on the inside is a lie. That's right. right. You, you remember it, the lyrics Did your granny song. say, listen to your heart, be who you are? On the inside. Yeah. And yeah. then he says, your, gran- your granny lied. Guess what? Your granny lied. So somehow he knows about this, but I guess he's some sort of also demigod. We're just sort of thing. thinking like, I don't know, humans yeah. probably talk to their grannies about this stuff. Sure. Sure. I mean, he ate his, right? He <laughs> <did>. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but Tamatoa has a completely different outlook and his mm-hmm. is all external. And he actually thinks that Maui's tattoos are pretty cool because they're like, you know, they're bling on his body. Right. Rather than being an ex an external expression of internal events and pain, which is actually thinks, what they are. Yeah. Yeah. He yeah. thinks they're like just decoration. I'd rather be shiny. That's the whole crux of that song. No matter what else is going on, he wants to be shiny. Yeah. So in the middle of the movie, we have this uh, this encounter with Tamatoa, who gives us the opposite side of what the what the internal quest of the movie is about. We see this character who is just just external that's mm-hmm. it um and he's set up as a villain uh, yeah. e- even if a, a kind of a silly one about bioluminescent algae as a division, uh, <laughs> division. i'm gonna keep saying that i'm so sorry <laughs> i can't get it out of my head it's so um, good so I, I think that's really important that when they're in tamatoa's lair um moana is presented with the idea that what her grandmother has told her is a lie and that is also i don't think she believes him in that moment that becomes later on she starts to wonder you know is that really true should i listen to who i am on the inside or should i just go back and and let my vocation my mission go to someone else but in that in the in tamatoa's lair is the first time she starts to see the pain of maui there's that i don't know bridge in the song where um she starts to see his the tattoo that his hair has hidden on his upper back of him as a child being tossed away by his family and eventually taken up by the gods and he's a demigod but that's the first time moana kind of sees the human side or the the pained side of maui and that part of his you know inside she wouldn't have been able to see that except it is expressed externally but not just for glam not just for bling he's trying to even hide it but just that that's part of who he is and that's the story of his tattoos they show where he's been and and then when they get when they leave Tamatoa's there with the hook and they're back on the boat, um, Maui can't turn into his favorite form of the hawk. He's he's trying hard and he can't get the hook to work right. And he's lying down on the boat and he puts his own name in sarcastic air quotes. Oh, that's right. And and I think that's really fascinating. So in that moment, Maui doesn't think he's Maui because he doesn't have the powers that he expects to have. Mm-hmm. Um and he says, the gods made me Maui. And Moana says, the gods aren't the ones who made you Maui. You are. Right. So claiming the name for himself. And Moana is claiming it for him in this moment, mm. but she hasn't claimed her own yet. She said it a whole lot, but it's not until the moment, which we're going to get to in a second, where she really claims it. I, I don't mm-hmm. think because it's not until she sings it really big. Oh yeah. No, that's, <laughs> it, that's it really the moment. Happens, right. That's the moment. So let's, let's, uh, let's, yeah, let's go get there. there. Yeah. 
because it is an extremely meaningful scene. You're right. That is the low point of the movie. That's the emotional, emotional and kind of plot low point. And she is, she throws the the heart back into the ocean. She says, I'm not the right person. And that's when the moment that her kind of the ocean shivers and grandma Tala appears to her in stingray form. And then eventually on the boat. And this is interesting too, because when Tala comforts Moana, Tala apologizes. I shouldn't have put so much on your shoulders. If you're ready to go home, then I'll be with you. She gives Moana an out to say, if you really don't think this is your mission, if this really isn't who you are, that's okay. Isn't that what we learned so much with the chosen ones is that they they need to be fully choosing it. They need to not be cornered into the choice, but to, you know, as we learn in Harry Potter seven, freely and willingly accept the dangerous mission in front of them. If they are backed into a corner or coerced into it, or it's really not their mission and they're doing it anyway, that's not a chosen one. That is, that's another type of hero. This is the there reluctant has to be, hero. Yeah. Right. There has to be a way out and the hero chooses not to take it. And in this moment, having that permission from grandma Tala, I think is what gives Moana the courage to say, no, this, this is my call. Yeah, she and Hatala then asks her, why do you hesitate? She's about to turn mm-hmm. the boat around, but she hesitates. And then Tala reminds her. And when the voice starts to whisper, Moana, you've come so far. Moana, listen, do you know who you are? And that's where we then get Moana rehearsing who she is. That's right. She has to kind of work herself into it. She like really repeats back the things she knows she is. I am a girl who loves my island. I'm a girl who loves the sea. It calls me. She remembers the sea calling her. Uh, I am the daughter of the village chiefs, right? We're descended from voyagers who found their way across the world. They call me um, and so on and so forth. I am everything I've learned and more. Still, it calls me. And the call isn't out there at all. It's inside me. It's like the tide always falling and rising. And then to her grandmother, I will carry you here in my heart. You remind me that come what may, I know the way. And then of course, that's when she sings the big, I am Moana. And I love, I love these lyrics because it goes from the contradictions between her loving her island and loving the sea. And at the beginning of the movie, the big tension is she can't do both in order. But as we learn in the movie, she goes to, she goes on to the sea in order to fulfill that ultimate love for her island. So she knows the sea is calling her. She knows her ancestors are calling her um, in that beautiful scene that she's surrounded by the ghosts of the ships that have gone out before her. The, the chief, you know, referring to the necklace that he wears, that she now wears as a descendant of him. So the sea calls her. The ancestors call her. Um, everything she's done calls to her. And yet, ultimately, the call comes from inside the call isn't necessarily the sea. It's that the sea is inside her. That's the tide that's raw, rising and falling. The, the call isn't out there at all. It's inside me. And that's when she sings, I am Moana. She discovers that all these external things are important, but ultimately her true mission comes from the inside. And then she changes the words of what Grandma Toller told her to, tell, to say to Maui. Mm-hmm. And she says, I am Moana Motonui. Aboard my boat, I will sail across the sea and restore the heart of Tafiti. She claims the mission for herself. And then Maui comes back and helps her. But it wasn't just, I'm going to go get Maui and he's going to do everything. 
Right. Now it's, now it's her job. The heart is going to be restored regardless. And if Maui's not going to do it, she certainly will. It's like she took her own self by the ear yeah. and said, <laughs> I am this, right? Um, and, and so when we talk about that call around and around her name being both external and internal, you know, you have the ancestors, you have everything she's done leading up to this point. And then she goes internal and finds that it truly is inside of her. And she shares that with the world through the vehicle of her own name. Mm-hmm. Th- that's the, the trope we're, we're playing with here. That over the course of the movie has allowed her to empathize with other characters. Mm, like, know, she Maui said, and... like Maui and then Tafiti. Because mm-hmm. um, after Moana reminds him that Maui made himself, you know, you the guards aren't the ones who made you, you are. That's when Maui regains his confidence and is able to transform. Yeah, properly. Uh, what what's that? Yeah, to properly, transfer, properly, not just into not, shark head not, or Sven <laughs> or Sven from Frozen, <laughs> from a Frozen. wonderful Easter egg. <laughs> um, and of course, then that brings us to our our quote from Nerd Canon today, when she notices, and I my kids saw it too. When when they saw Tekov, they saw the spiral. They go, they're ah, like, ah. ah, yeah, it's such, it's so well done. Um, and then it goes, slows down, and she walks to towards Teka, and we get that beautiful. Um, kind of echo of, mm-hmm. I know your name. I, I I know who I am. And now I know who you are. You know, they have stolen the heart from inside you, but that's not what defines you. You know who you are. Um, Moana knows her name, but Moana knowing the name of Tafiti isn't quite enough. It can be a pathway to wholeness and healing, but ultimately what, what Tafiti needs is to claim her own name again, who she is. And in doing so, she kind of cools cools her lava face enough to touch noses with Moana and then to receive her heart back. And that's what transforms her back into Tafiti from, from the lava monster Taka and the and life bursts forth and she's restored into her fullness, her all of her creative glory, only by being able to claim her own name. So kind of like Moana on the boat claiming her name back and Maui first hearing from Moana that you know, the gods didn't make you, you made you. It's all, names in Moana seem to only matter in as much as they are claimed by the person who owns them or who, or who wields them. The name being a shorthand for the mission, the identity, mm-hmm. the person that they, that they truly are. Uh, and that's what brings us to Jesus in our, Absolutely. in our quote from Matthew's gospel. We have, uh, this is where Joseph, Jesus's earthly father, is visited by the angel in a dream because he's contemplating uh, sort of setting Mary aside because she's pregnant. And that's when we get the words from the angel telling him, don't be afraid, as angels always say, don't be afraid <laughs> to take Mary as your wife. And then the angel says, and, and here's his name, his name's going to be Jesus, uh, which, by the way, was a a fairly common name right yeah at, yeshua. At, in the time um the name being yeshua yeah that's the name joshua jesus is the greek form um and um and then the name jesus's name jesus or yeshua is translated right next right after that because mm. he will save his people from their sins that's what jesus means it means mm. god saves and then we have Emmanuel, the second name, which is quoted from Isaiah. Mm-hmm. And, and then because Matthew's audience may or may not be able to read Hebrew, uh, <laughs> Matthew translates Emmanuel for us right there. Emmanuel right. means God with us. So we have in Jesus's two names, 
this beautiful mission statement of who Jesus is. Just like we have in, in Moana, the mission and the name kind of coming together. And we know, and we and we know that Jesus's name of Emmanuel is important, this God with us, because at the very end of the gospel, what's the last line of Matthew? I will be with you always. I will be with you always until the oh, end I of the ages. I got it right. You oh, got it. Got it well half done. right. Well, you were you were there. No, you got All the right, good sorry. part. You got the part that was that that bookends the entire Gospel of Matthew. Gospel of Matthew is about God being with us in this new way. And it's all, so we have clues to Jesus's identity in his names. Um, and, and it makes me think, you know, when we talk about our own names, like um, my name, your name, obviously our names are just names, but what name would we claim for ourselves to show what our vocation is, what our identity is, what call God has placed on our hearts? What would our name be if not Carrie or Adam? I actually really like my name because it has a deep meaning to me. Ooh, so what is it? I, I, can you share it on the podcast? Oh, absolutely. I'd, so I'd I'm, to hear it. I'm named for my great grandma, Carmel. That was not where they got the nickname Carrie. Carrie is short for her Italian nickname, Carissima, which is like a pet name. It's like loved one, dear one. So at my my, the center of my name is the concept of belovedness, of being beloved. And uh, I think as a lot of us have to learn how to, one of my, I guess the paths of my life is learning to accept the love of those around us. Um, that belovedness is at the center of who I am and being named for a relative who was much beloved in my family, who I never met. I think she died a couple weeks before I was born. Um, but the very center of my name is, you know, that I am loved. And that's such a huge part of how I understand my vocation of being loved and sharing that love. And, um, and I think of how, of how God loves us and calls us to share that love as well. So that's, that's the story of my name. I that think that is um, so beautiful. Oh, I love yeah. it. Thank you for sharing that. That's so Do wonderful. You, does Adam have a particular meeting for you? I mean, not in the sense, not, not in the familial sense that your name does. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do love the origin of my mm -hmm. name, you know, being the first name in the Bible, as ha it were, Adam. Ha Adam, which isn't even a name no, in the scripture. Yeah. It's, it just means person of earth. Yeah. Right? You're the Hebrew scholar here. Is that a, a fair, a fair yeah, translation? Yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah. I think, uh, oh God, I don't remember. <laughs> oh no. But yeah, ha, ha Adam is, is the, is the person of earth. The, and the human is like coming from the hummus right? That, that's, that's where that word comes from. And so when you, when you see when you see Adam in Genesis, you could just translate that as the human, right? The, person, the human yeah. being. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, but I love the, the way that the name comes from the earth comes from mm. the ground. Uh, it's a grounded name. It's, it's a name that speaks of God's creation of God breathing God's breath into the human Mm -hmm. in that in that stunningly uh intimate act of creation in genesis 2 so when i think about my name and i think about god breathing life into the first adam that's what i that's where mm. uh, that's where i live is this that creative spark that creative that creativity of humanity mirroring the creativity of god in the opening stories of genesis because even in genesis 1 god names things all over the place Mm -hmm. That's a huge part of that creation story is, is naming things. And 
And then the humans also name all the animals. There we go. It's like, does that happen? <laughs> in, in the, yeah, yeah, it, it does. Uh, but in, in the first chapter, we God names the the sun and the, the sky and, and the light and, and all this stuff. Let there be light. I'm going to, I'm making light by naming it light. <laughs> you and I are, are, are lucky or, or just coincidentally happen to have these connections with our given names, but not everybody does. Some people have names that don't feel like who they are. And I think one of the special things that church has done can do is supporting when people change their names, either just because they want to, they feel more connection to it, or in the case of a person with um, a, who's transitioning and claiming a new name for themselves is to honor and support the name that they have chosen for themselves. And I know like we don't rebaptize people, but we have thankfully in our denomination developed rights where, where the new name is blessed. And we put it, we put aside the name that no longer fits the person and acknowledge that the name that you have chosen, that you have claimed for yourself is important and holy. And in a way given to you by God, more than the name that, you know, you just happen to be born with. So I think that's an important part of this. And one of the ways we can really respect one another as in our humanity is to not use the names that people no longer have a claim to. Noting that our actual given names are one thing, and then we could also imaginatively think about what a name would be for our mission. It's not necessarily our given name, but Mm -hmm. Jesus's names happen to translate into his mission uh, which was nice that they did that uh, but, <laughs> that's nice uh, um but, but we do have we do have a vocation we do have so god calls us into something into a mission and when we claim that we actually discover who we are just like moana does that's that's the important thing there and like god naming the things in the creation story we wanted to just bring in as we close up our discussion here one of our favorite books the Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss, which is one of the best fantasy novels of all time. I which love it. I almost missed recording this podcast because I couldn't stop <laughs> rereading it for the fifth time. So <laughs> so in this book, as we said at the very beginning, the, the naming in fantasy, the fantasy genre is a fairly common thing in this particular book. There, is, there are a couple of different kinds of magic. There's magic that is almost scientific uh, magic. And then there's also this very ephemeral mysterious magic, which is the magic of naming. Uh, and when you know something's true name, you're able to uh, to harness that thing. Right. And this is obviously the cent- It's the title, The Name of the Wind, and kind of the central hope for the main character uh, for Koth in learning magic, as we would call it, is to learn the name of the wind. He sees it. He knows the stories of the great magician uh, Taberlin the Great, who knew the name of all things, and so all things were his to command. He said to the stone, break, and the stone broke. And he knows the name of the wind, so the wind obeys him. So there's this famous, you know, magician that's well known in their in their stories. But then there's also in the very creation story, in the mythology of name of the wind, is the god Telu who named everything and throws the demons into what they call the, the, the nameless void. Oh, so yeah, that non-existence go. is a place of no names. Mm-hmm. The place of existence is a place where there are names. So at the university where the main character Quoth goes, um, there is a delightful character, the master namer, Elidin, uh, who I think should be played by David Tennant. Um, oh my gosh. I think he's just the perfect casting for that. Just do no, the 10th doctor. Be. Just he the 10th really doctor. Would be. Yeah. <laughs> no, I can't get um, that out so of my head now. After, after um, 
Quoth at near the end of the book, Quoth calls the win by accident. He doesn't even mean to. He's really, really angry because of something that happens. His his uh, his nemesis does something to him that's really awful, and and he calls the name of the wind in response. And so he and Master Elodin end up in this kind of roundabout conversation. And uh, I, I think this is this is fan- fantastic. Um, so here here this is uh, this is from near the end of the name of the wind. Uh, Elodin says, <clears throat> can you describe all the things you understand? He looked sideways at me. Of course. Elodin pointed down the street. What color is that boy's shirt? Blue. What do you mean by blue? Describe it. I struggled for a moment, failed. So blue is a name? Elodin, and this is Elodin now. It is a word. Words are pale shadows of forgotten names. As names have power, words have power. Words can light fires in the minds of men. Words can wring tears from the hardest hearts. There are seven words that will make a person love you. There are 10 words that will break a strong man's will. But a word is nothing but a painting of a fire. A name is the fire itself. This season on the podcast, we are answering your questions on faith, fandom, and everything in between. This episode's question is from Rick via Facebook. He asks, any fantasy or sci-fi worlds you would love to live in? Any that you feel meh about? All right. So I think you should answer this one first, because when you read the question, you just you just lit up and were like, yes, I've thought about this for my whole life. Well, I would love to live in Pern after they discover in like the age of science in Pern, the, the dragon riders of Pern series has a lot of issues about it. A lot of gender dynamics that are unfortunate and like human sexuality questions that go very deeply unexplored. But part of the shift in the Pern books is going from kind of a fantasy to a science fiction. I think even the genres change within themselves. So we, we learn like early on that these are like old earth colonists but they're kind of living in this like medieval feudal state of like poverty and despair, essentially. I don't like that. I don't want to live there. Um, I will like after they rediscover the ancient tech and destroy the thing. Oh, gosh, it's spoilers. It's been out for like 20 years. Destroy the thing that has been plaguing their planet for cent- for centuries, ever since it was founded. And there's just this era of hopefulness, of technology, of new beginnings. And I also, one of the things I do appreciate about Pern is because of the way the society has developed where they need to stay like in caves essentially for protection, it's developed like almost like a commune structure. There's very few individual houses or settlements. It's all like in this larger communal structure and they, and they eat together and they work together. And that is very appealing to me. So I would want to live in post Avis Pern time before they potentially ruin it like humans do. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. <laughs> what, if, what about you, Adam? What sprung to your mind? So um, I'm going to say two that I would feel meh about, and then I'll say one that I would really love to live in. The two that I would feel meh about are for different reasons. The first okay. one is, is, is Westeros. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah I would not yeah. want to live in Westeros because it's basically just like a horrible medieval society where everybody just gets sick and dies. 
yeah, or, or murders each <laughs> or, other or, murders or each exploits other. each other. Yeah. So there's just, there's not a lot of redeeming value of living in Westeros. Unless so, you're in like the 1%, um, you're probably going to yeah, die by even the, the age 1% of 20. Is just, it might just get murdered, you know? Yeah, so yeah. I'm not, so West, Westeros is out. I'm not looking for real estate uh, in King's Landing um, or even in the free cities, you know, across the the sea. Yeah. Um, the other one where I don't want to live is not because I don't particularly like it. Like Westeros is the stillness in the broken earth trilogy by NK Jemison. Yeah. Sounds very dangerous because it's really dangerous and there's <laughs> earthquakes all the time. Uh, however, the books are amazing and everybody should read them. Um, it's a great series. And it won three Hugos in a row. <laughs> live in it in your mind, um, yeah, not in Don't actually live reality. in the stillness. Uh, Isn't but, that the first yeah. series to win three Hugos in a row? I, I think it, I think that's that's accurate. Yep. Uh, the one that I do want to live though is is Star Trek. I mean, it's pretty obvious. Oh, yeah. Is, you know, my new my new avatar on our little new logo for season four um is me as a full commander. Um I think I'm 38. <laughs> I'm actually older than Riker was when he started. Oh, as a full gosh. commander, as a full commander on Next We're Generation. <laughs> um, no, I just love the and, and Next Generation is my show. So I'm gonna mm -hmm. say, I'm gonna say um, the 24th century in the Star Trek timeline uh, because it's a post scarcity society. Uh, you know, they have replicators that can make everything. They they know how to transfer energy into matter. Um, the they have whales because of Star Trek Four. Thank God. You know, for thank the God. I love that the characters on the Enterprise, specifically, since that's the, the ship we're on, uh, support each other and are a team. And there's there's not a ton of conflict between the characters. Mm -hmm. Most of the conflict is external. Mm -hmm. That was actually, you know, that's a Gene Roddenberry thing. He didn't want conflict between the characters, which is hard you know, on a TV show, not to, <laughs> yeah. not to have that, um, which is why most of the conflict is external, at least on the shows that Gene Roddenberry was alive for. Um, so yeah, I'm going to say uh, 24th century Star Trek. Um, and I want to be a, uh, an officer on the Enterprise D under the command of Captain Jean-Luc Picard, who is my captain. I love, I love that. And I think our, our dream fantasy worlds share a sort of similarity in terms of uh, reasonable and sustainable human progress and optimism in that, along with communal cooperation. So I think that makes sense for two Episcopal priests. <laughs> yeah, I like that. There we go. All right. So there you go, Rick. Um, Thanks, Rick. Pern, Pern, a very specific age of Pern for Carrie. Yeah. Uh, 24th century uh, Star Trek for me. And Post what about you? Ninth Pass. Yeah. What about you because... all? Uh, go ahead and, mm. and, and leave, a, leave a reply on Rick's question on our Facebook page. Let us know where you want to live in a sci-fi or fantasy world. And keep on sending your questions. You can... Reach us at Nerdy Christians on Twitter or at Rev Adam Thomas, also on Facebook.com slash Nerdy Christians. We'll be right back with Harry Potter. And now for a quick recap of chapters six through nine of Harry Potter seven. Chapter six, The Ghoul in Pajamas. In the days leading up to Bill and Fleur's wedding, Harry, Ron, and Hermione's attempts at meeting to discuss their upcoming mission are constantly foiled by Mrs. Weasley. 
When at last they are able to find time alone, Ron and Hermione share the plans they have made to ensure their family's safety while they accompany Harry. Hermione has wiped her parents' memories of her and sent them off to Australia, while Ron has pulled a wizard version of the old pillows-in-the-bed trick, disguising the family ghoul as a disease-stricken version of himself. It seems like all is in order for the three to set off, wherever it is they're going, after the wedding, of course. Chapter 7. The Will of Albus Dumbledore. It's Harry's 17th birthday, and that means he is finally able to do magic without being called up to the ministry. The usual festivities are dampened somewhat by the arrival of Rufus Scrimger, who brings items from Albus Dumbledore's last will and testament. Dumbledore's own Deluminator for Ron, a book of children's tales for Hermione, and the Golden Snitch Harry caught in his first Quidditch match. The last item is the Sword of Gryffindor, which has been retained by the Ministry. The Snitch provides another mystery to solve. It recognizes the person who caught it, so Scrimger was unable to crack it open. Lifting it to his mouth, this was the Snitch Harry almost swallowed, remember? Five words appear in Dumbledore's handwriting. I open at the close. Chapter 8, The Wedding. Harry has never been to a wedding, either wizard or muggle. Disguised as a red-haired Weasley cousin, Harry reunites with several old friends, some who recognize him like Luna, some who don't like Crumb. The latter almost comes to blows with Luna's father, who is wearing a symbol Crumb says belongs to the dark wizard Grindelwald, but Mr. Lovegood can't be a supporter of the dark arts, can he? Harry introduces himself quietly to Elpheus Doge, an old friend of Dumbledore's who lauds the departed headmaster, while Ron's Auntie Muriel gossips happily and horribly about the dark secrets of the Dumbledore family. Suddenly, the party is interrupted by Kingsley's Patronus. The ministry has fallen, Scrimger is dead, and they are coming. Chapter 9, A Place to Hide in the resulting chaos, the trio manages to disapparate into Muggle London. Where they hide in a cafe, they are racked with worry and confusion. They are discovered by two Death Eaters who they manage to subdue and obliviate before moving to the dubious safety of Sirius's old house. Settling in uneasily, they receive news that Ron's family is safe, but being watched. Harry feels a mounting anger from inside him. Voldemort has learned that Harry has escaped. Falling into another vision, Harry sees Draco torturing Death Eaters under Voldemort's command, expressing all of the anger and frustration the Dark Lord feels to have been foiled yet again. Dun, dun, dun. So speaking of yet again, after the guilt and pain that Harry undergoes after escaping from the Dursleys at the cost of Moody's life, he is now loath to let his friends accompany him on this mission, which is hilarious to me because they keep saying, hey, Harry, we're coming with you. And he keeps saying, did you really think about this? Are you sure you want to come with me? I love the scene when the trio finally uh, agree to set off together and show him his prep the preparations they have taken because it is them becoming equal members of this adventuring party, essentially. Like they're following Harry, but they're all this is also their mission. Speaking of of claiming a vocation. Yeah. And there's a lovely moment there when the measures that Ron and Hermione have taken to protect their families, that's what convinces Harry that they do understand the danger of going with him. Mm. And then it says he can't find words important enough to express what this means to him. He's so he's so bad at expressing his emotions. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the next chapter, he hugs Mrs. Weasley when she gives him the watch and quote, she tr uh, he tried to put a lot of unsaid things into the hug. So with Mrs. Weasley, he also cannot speak his his emotions to her, but he can show them. 
there is a lot of mounting frustration in these chapters, particularly this first one, because I think following the chaotic escape from number four, Privet Drive, Harry now is stuck at the at the borough. Like he wants to go out and set up on his mission. He says, um, Harry felt that nothing but action would assuage his feelings of guilt and grief. He wants to start now that or he has to wait till he's 17. That's four days away. But apparently he has to also stick around for the wedding, which is one additional adding one additional day is like intolerable to him because it's so much easier to do than just to sit with your grief and your emotions. Mm, yeah. he, he's a person of action. He's not a person that sits and, you know, ponders and is, you know, over his, his yeah. feelings, <laughs> yeah. even though he probably needs to attend to them as well. I love that his, this desire for action is curtailed and like shaped by his relationships. Like Molly's concerned parent attack to him where she's like, are you sure you're going to drop out of Hogwarts? Seems like a bad idea. He almost, he's almost wavers because of that. The thought of Ginny is almost enough to keep him there. Um, the thought of his friends being in danger is almost enough to have him convince them to stay. And yet he still knows that this is his call. It's interesting though, that you mentioned that his act, wanting to be action oriented to move, to push the grief away. I mean, cause that's mm-hmm. so, I mean, it, I've found as a pastor walking with people through through death and through funeral is that the day after the funeral is, is sometimes the hardest day because yeah. up until the funeral, there has been actions to attend to, things you know, to decisions do. to make things yep. to do. And then the day after the funeral, everybody leaves and you're there and you're just there with your grief and mm-hmm. it all comes rushing back. Mm-hmm. And I think Harry is trying to forestall that. Uh, and yet he does take those few days at the borough. And I think it does, he is able to at least integrate what's happened into him because he's said, okay, yeah, you guys can come. I'm not going to sneak away. It's okay. You don't have to worry. I'm not going to sneak away. Um, and then Hermione took all his stuff anyway. <laughs> That's right. She hides it in, in her uh, TARDIS bag. In her TARDIS what bag, I, the bigger, it's bigger I just, on the inside. What yeah. I love is um, it becomes like almost like a joke or a meme. Like, are you sure you're coming with me? Yeah. And Hermione's like, we're coming with you. That was decided months ago, years really. And yeah. he asks, are you sure you've thought this through? Harry Potter asks Hermione Jean Granger if, she's thought if she has through. thought something through, <laughs> which is why, you know, she and Ron are like, yes, buddy, we have. Let's show you. They finally get away from Mrs. Weasley and they're chatting up in Ron's room and they start talking about the Horcruxes. Um, and Hermione pulls out the book. What's the book she pulls out? Secrets um, of the Darkest Art. And then they're talking about how many Horcruxes could Voldemort actually have made? Because apparently just making one is already, because you have to kill somebody to do it, mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. already beyond the pale. Um, so how we know from book six more? that he intended to make, have a total of seven soul pieces, i.e. six Horcruxes. Yeah, Harry remembered what Dumbledore had said about Voldemort moving beyond, quote, usual evil. Uh, and then Ron says, isn't there any way of putting yourself back together? Mm. Yes, said Hermione with a hollow smile, but it would be excruciatingly painful. Why? How do you do it? Asked Harry. Remorse, said Hermione. You've got to really feel what you've done. There's a footnote. Apparently the pain of it can destroy you. I can't see Voldemort attempting it somehow. Can you? First of all, I love that it's only a footnote that they <laughs> did not merit a chapter t- a chapter or a subject heading. It's just like in the footnotes, like, oh, by the way, if you want to undo this 
horrible action. You get it just to feel remorse. It makes sense also, that it's a footnote because it's in the yeah. secrets of the darkest art. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're, they're not assuming that you were going to want to ever undo it. Going back to the scene in Acts when the people are hearing Peter preach about Jesus and then they they describe it as being they're cut to the heart. They feel what's called compunction, that feeling remorse of our of our bad actions, of our sins pains us, but only from that, you know, remorse from that recognition of the impact our actions have done, can we find repentance and healing. So you are cut to the heart and then you are offered restoration. So in order to get rid of a horcrux, you have to feel the weight of what you have done. It's not a punishment. It's a, a, a recognizing of the true depth of your actions. And I think that the idea that remorse can heal a horcrux is incredibly well thought out and smart. I, I, I agree to a point, but I wish mm. it had gone one step further because mm-hmm. there's a difference between compunction, the feeling, the feeling the, um, the, the, within yourself that you have done wrong and making amends for the action that you did. So to me, if I were writing this, the, the, the Horcrux restoration model would be remorse followed by amendment of life and an mm, actual mm-hmm. turning around and repenting um, and yeah. not just the feeling of I did wrong. Um, and that might be somehow some sort of a seeking of forgiveness. You know, mm-hmm. there's, you know, we look at like a 12 step model there, you know, as long as the forgiveness isn't going to, you know, damage the other party. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I just think I, I, I like this. I just wish it had gone one step further beyond simple, the pain of, of knowing what I did was wrong and actually trying to make amends for it. Well, that's a really good point. And we look at, you know, sort of restorative justice processes or something like South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, where the stories are told of, you know, the, the person doing the harm and the person who has had the harm done to them in order to, to bring the story into the light, to share the emotions and then something else happens and reconciliation doesn't happen immediately. And sometimes reconciliation can only mean you never see this person you've hurt again. I mean, in the case of a Horcrux, they're dead, but mm-hmm. in the case of, of other things, you know, you might not have a, a full relationship again, but you are amending the way you live and changing. And that leads to healing. Hermione says, look, if I picked up a sword right now, Ron, and ran you through with it, I wouldn't damage your soul at all. Which would be a real comfort to me, I'm sure, said Ron. Harry laughed. And Hermione says, it should be, actually. <laughs> I, I love that. I love that. It's a good thing we don't have the sword of Gryffindor just lying around. Otherwise, yeah, Ron might like, get a little bit. Yeah. Despite Ron's growing tact and like overt um, trying to cozy up to Hermione in this book. So there's a lot of important and very deep parts of these chapters, but it's also just delightful. Yeah. Like he's, he's, he's read, he's read a guidebook about how to 12 fail safe ways to charm witches. I love when he like, when, when Harry compliments Mrs. Weasley's like cake or something and Ron's like, good job. <laughs> <laughs> so they might be delightful chapters, but then at the beginning of the wedding chapter, Fred says, when I get married, oh, are you kidding me? Come on. Come on, J.K. Rowling. Twist the knife a little bit. That's just I do love mean. it. You can all wear whatever you like, and I'm putting a full body bind curse on mom. <laughs> we get to the conversation with Elphius Doge, and um, Harry starts learning lots from Auntie Muriel and so forth. I'm, I'm curious about Ariana Dumbledore, and mm. I want to know, was she an obscurus? Do we do? Is there is there any evidence of that? 
Yeah, it's she didn't they didn't have the name for it, but I think um, I think she's recognized to be what would be later called an obscurus. And by later, I mean earlier. Well, right. Well, because later, later in the writing time. Yeah. Earlier in the in the book time. So she is an obscurial who has who is perturbed by an obscurus. But but she is like the guy in 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 um uh, Fantastic the first Beasts. Fantastic Beast, right? So yeah. the when when a young witch or wizard suppresses their magic either through like psychological or physical abuse, in Ariana's case, she was caught doing magic by Muggles, some Muggle boys, neighbors who presumably did something terrible to her. They they skate over what exactly it is, and I don't think we need to know it. What matters is that she it was so it was so scarring to her that she suppresses her magic, and as we learn through the Fantastic Beast movie. As we see, um, what's his face, bare bones, that kid, uh, yeah, <laughs> magic that magic doesn't just go away, it does. Sorry, credence, credence, um, thank it, you. It remains in the person and kind of comes out at different times. And, and a big part of the first film of the Fantastic Beast is Newt Scamander, um, had known one of these people, had tried to kept keep one alive, and has kept essentially the obscurus the magical bubble alive even though the host has died and where they're going with that i'm not really sure so we'll see but that is kind of ariana's arc as we learn her obscurus lashed out presumably killing her mother and then something well in in, in her own death i think they are not sure if maybe one of the boys curses hit her Either way, it's heartbreaking, and it really it makes me wonder how much Harry was in danger growing up in the Dursleys mm. household because oh, he had a, he had instances of accidental magic all the time, like ending up on the school roof or having a sweater shrunk, but letting out the anaconda that um, you know sort of escapes from the zoo. Um, but he doesn't suppress his magic to the point where it can turn into this obscurus. And I wonder if he doesn't suppress it because he doesn't know about it. So it yeah, keeps coming not, out. It comes out in little in little mm, moments as opposed to knowing about it and and actively suppressing it. Or or if not actively suppressing it, then at least having your psychology be bent around suppressing it. Right. And his family just assume, you know, he's weird and does bad stuff. And he kind of takes that to heart of like, I'm just a I'm just a bad kid. I'm a weird kid. Um, he doesn't mm-hmm. think he still doesn't believe, you know, when he when her, when Hagrid says you're a wizard, I'm a what? Um, a he what? doesn't quite understand wizard, it Harry. as fast. Sorry. Got yep. Got go. It's, it's <laughs> eminently memeable. <laughs> what? Uh, what? All right. Moving. All right. Let's <laughs> moving see. On. Okay. That's that. That sounds pretty good. Do you have anything for the uh, the chapter where they're running through uh, Tottenham Court Road? I don't. Except that Hermione's bag is a is a TARDIS, which you already said. So Hermione's bag is a TARDIS. Very helpful. I wish that everything had undetectable extension charms yeah. on or, it. Or or a bag of holding if you are a, uh, a Dungeons and Dragons player. This is handy in Harry Potter because they're able to keep their traveling library, um, all of Ron's two two small jeans and other things. um, And unlike a bag of holding, you can summon things out, but you do have to like rummage around for them. Yeah. Whereas a bag of holding, you just think about the item and and find it. it Or you can dump a bag of holding up and shake everything out. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, you can. Yeah. Yep. Oh, all right. Uh, yeah, there you go. Yeah. All right. Well, next time on the podcast, we'll be reading Harry Potter, the Deathly Hallows, chapters 10 through 14. That's Creature's Tale, the Bribe, Magic is Might, the Muggleborn Registration Commission, and the Thief. Happy reading.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. You can find us at nerdychristians.com or on social media, facebook.com slash nerdychristians and on Twitter at nerdychristians, where I occasionally tweet bad memes. You can find Adam on Twitter at RevAdamThomas or on his new website, AdamThomas.net. Check out Adam's latest fantasy novel, Vampire Mist, Ballad of the B-Team, book one. I'm a character in it, as are a lot of our friends who we talk about on this podcast. And as always, you can find both of us right here on the next episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians, where faith meets fandom. May your true name, given to you by God, claimed by you, guide and strengthen you on your path. You know who you are. Amen.